the dollar ultimately doesn't work and gold does work. Okay, but how do you get from here to there? And the key is interest. And if you can earn interest on it, it will be so much more useful, so much more interesting. And so interest is the force that draws gold into the market. Otherwise, it just disappears into private hoards. CEOs often feel stuck in the grind of scaling their business and feel like they're missing out on the best parts of life, like family, friends, or travel. On this podcast, CEOs come to take themselves and their companies to the next level. Let's dive into the millionaire mind with your host, Dallin Schultz. Hey folks, just wanted to add a quick little disclaimer. We do have a little bit of audio glitching in this episode. And just want to let you know that our team works really, really hard to provide a quality product. But at the end of the day, sometimes there's technical issues and we did our best to improve it. But just so you know, you are going to hear a little bit of that through this episode. I promise you, it's not going to disrupt the message and you're still going to find a tremendous amount of value. So thanks for tuning in. Thanks for supporting us and enjoy the episode. Hey, welcome back to another Millionaire Mind episode where I have some of the most successful business owners sharing what motivates them to get out of bed every morning and how they elevate themselves and their companies to the next level. Now, when most people think of gold, they probably think of gold coins or bars that individuals collect and lock away in a safe. And although that might be the case for a lot of people, our guest today has found a way to unlock, really unlock the productivity of gold. And what does that mean? Well, guess what? You're going to find out on today's episode. And we're going to hear about his journey and how we got into this such unique niche. So really looking forward to this interview. A special welcome to our guest, Keith Wiener. Keith, thank you for joining us today. Hey, thanks for having me, Dallin. So it's a pleasure. And Keith and I connected a few weeks back. I think it was on LinkedIn that we connected and he shared with me his story. And again, I never seem to be blown away with the businesses and the ideas and the opportunities that I never even would have thought of. So we're definitely going to get into uh, more of Keith's current business and what he's doing today. And we're also going to get into his journey. But Keith, why don't you take a couple minutes and just share with our listener, give them a two to three minute cliff note version of who you are and what you do today. I started out, I guess, as your classic computer nerd in high school, majored in computer science, dropped out because I wanted to build a company, a software company, like so many of my heroes did before me, built a software company called Diamondware, which I sold to Nortel Networks. The transaction date was August 19, 2008, which is significant because that was right on the eve of the great financial crisis. And I had one of the last decent exits that anybody had into that. And as a historical footnote, the last transaction that Nortel did before Nortel began to spiral into bankruptcy, which they ultimately declared in January of 2009, a few months later. Jeez. Talk about good timing, huh? And you're not in control of the timing as the entrepreneur. <laughs> you know, yeah. you think you work hard and, and you're smart and you have a great idea and you have a great team and they're working hard. And you know, the acquisition process was like eight months and the entrepreneur was trying to get the money. He just wanted to close like yesterday. Right. But you're subject to things like lawyer summer vacations and things like CFIUS, you know, regulatory approvals and just all kinds of weird stuff. And here's how I put it. And I don't know how many of your other guests have said anything like this, but the life of an entrepreneur is not what most people would call normal to begin with. The life of getting acquired for those eight months makes the life of an entrepreneur look normal by comparison. It's intense. You're getting beat up left and right. Of course, prices of everything were falling at that point. I got beat up on praise. I got beat up on so many things. And then the acquisition was done and over and it just felt surreal. 
And then as everything's immediately going over the cliff in that fall, and obviously through the winter of 2009, in my particular case, I'd come in, it was a lot of money that I'd worked 14 years to get. So I started to study economics and markets to figure out how to protect myself. Came to realize there's there was a crisis in the monetary system, which never really got resolved. They just fixed the debt crisis by, you know, lending more. And you think about that one for a minute. Sounds kind of familiar, huh? So coming to realize gold is part of the solution. And I thought, well, in the normal world, I would do another software company. And my team had followed me to hell and back. They were saying to me through those years, 2009, 2010, 2011, hey, you know, we followed you to hell and back. The diamond wear, we're so sick and tired of this big corporate thing. What's the next gig? We're ready to jump. And we certainly had plenty of beers after work. Was kicking around all kinds of interesting and cool ideas. I think by that point, I knew what I was doing in the software business. I had access to capital, had great advisors and everything else. But I had to say to them, well, unfortunately, my next venture, I see a monetary problem and I want to be part of the solution. So I'm going to switch career paths, switch expertise, switch everything, not be a software entrepreneur, but try to be a finance entrepreneur and get into the goals. How did that go over with them? Did they look at you like you were crazy? I don't think they really understood it, but I did take it as a very serious responsibility to try to help everybody find a good landing spot. I think I did that in most cases. So, you know, they appreciated that, obviously. And I did end up a couple of years later hiring one of uh, one of them who was the rock star of that um, whole group that was now at Monetary Metals and as the guy who's architected our, our, our system. But I mean, I think people understand, okay, you have to move on. You have to do what you got to do. My obligations as such were concluded and there wasn't a problem per se. I mean, Awesome. I want to take it back a little bit and talk a little bit about the start of the software company. You said uh, at the start of our episode, that typical computer nerd, and you just wanted a software company. What was it about software and computer science that drew you in? Like, What was it that energized you and got you excited about that opportunity? I think this is a classic thing that you hear. I mean, I certainly have read this you know, all the time. Like, I enjoyed making computers do stuff so much. And at such an early age, I would have been happy to pay for the privilege of doing that. I can recall how excited I was when I got my first computer, which was an Apple II Plus back around 1982 or 83. I'm trying to remember what year it was. And that was just the most exciting thing ever. And I would stay up like all night working on it. And I wasn't mostly playing, I might play games as much as the next kid, but mostly like just getting it to do stuff was unlike anything else that existed in my experience. So I took that with me and went out to computer science school. I didn't really learn that much in the formal schooling. Most of what I did learn at school, I learned by there was a grad student who acted as a mentor to me. That's what I learned in the real stuff that I learned. And so I just eager to get on with it. So I had a very frustrating thing, very frustrating experience my last year there before I dropped out. And I was like, this is beep, beep, time for me to move on. And I felt like I had everything. I extracted everything that there was to get, at least at the undergraduate level. And I just didn't want to waste any more time just playing around with BS, really. So share with our listeners a little bit about Diamondware and, and what sparked that opportunity. Like you knew you wanted to get into software, but it sounds like there was a, something you recognized, an opportunity you recognized. So share with us a little bit about Diamondware and what problem that resolved. It didn't begin that way for me. It began as, you know, I had a few... I had one quote unquote real job and then I had done some contract work and none of it was really satisfying because, you know, for the most part, the people, I mean, the, the contracts were okay, but of course they ended and you move on. But the real job and others that I'd looked at, like you're working for somebody 
that if they don't get what you get, I kind of felt like that I wouldn't be able to exercise to my potential. I was just stuck doing something that I didn't really believe in and wasn't a lot of fun working for somebody who didn't really get it. And uh, if I had an idea for a better way to do something, somebody could say no. And that was very frustrating. So I started the company with no real business plan or no real business model, just sort of a, a vague, I'm sure you're hearing, you should be hearing all the warning signs, just sort of a vague notion that I can do software better than anyone else, I guess, if I articulate now what I was probably thinking then. And if the software development was good enough, I'd find clients somehow. There was a lot of somehow that was involved in that thought process. And um, like anybody trying to look back when you weren't clear on something and you try to articulate now that you are clear, what was I thinking at that time? It comes out approximately like that. I was like, well, I wasn't really that clear. But so it sounds like you knew one thing and that was you didn't want to work for someone anymore. Like that, I didn't work for somebody else, which actually is a terrible reason to go into business yourself because all the headaches and take on and all the challenges and the, the risk. Yeah. He goes off the charts, which I guess you ask anybody else who's 22 years old about risk and, and their perspective on it is, which I would say, limited. And mine was no different when I was that age, right? Yeah. But, anyways, you know, we evolved through a couple of business models. At first, it was like, okay, do some contract development. Then we put together some actual intellectual property, something called Diamond Resale Toolkit. So, back in the days of writing video games for DOS, Getting audio to work in a decent way was actually a very hard problem. And so we came up with, and I had one person working for me at that time, some pretty clever stuff that worked really well. And the product launched on the eve of Windows 95. And Windows 95 was the first Windows that really was a serious gamers platform. Before that, you had Windows for business applications and DOS for games that had to perform well. Anyway, so the product came out at the wrong time. And I get to learn all about what happens when you're a little company dancing at the feet of a giant corporation and without even intending to it, it steps on you. And we had some sales of the product, but sales were probably on the order of $50,000 over a couple of years. It was like, it wasn't, you're not in business to make that kind of money. And then you have to start thinking, okay, what are we doing? So we segued into a different business model, which is contract software development, very quickly realized we made some okay money at that, certainly better than the first product. But the problem with that is it's a treadmill because technologies keep changing. And if you're the contract shop that's doing technology number one, and then the world switches to technology number two, that transition is very difficult. You're going to probably end up having to lay off half the people who don't want to transition, find new people. It is a real treadmill and a real challenge. Something I wasn't so clear on then, but I'm much clearer on now. When you are a sole, like solo practitioner, let's say you're a computer software guy, accountant, insurance agent, whatever, you can be perfectly stable and make a decent living and go home to your wife and kids at night after maybe not an eight-hour day, certainly if you're a business for yourself, but let's call it a 10-hour day. With no employees, you can make okay money and have reasonable stress levels and go home and have life. The moment you hire the first employee, you're like entering the valley of death. And uh, you're not stable and you're not in a happy place because now you have to hunt for work to make payroll. You constantly have all these hassles, plus you start to have compliance and tax withholding, and all kinds of bureaucratic stuff. And then you're hiring another employee and another employee, and ultimately, or soon enough, you're hiring employees to solve the problems that came of hiring employees. And you go through this valley of death, and it gets worse and worse and worse, and you don't come out the other side of it until, I think, given the cost of compliance nowadays and the litigious environment and everything else, 
probably in your 30s, 30-something-odd employees. And you get to the other side of that, and you get to a happy, stable place again. And it's not what you're thinking about when you're there. You're just reacting to each thing and trying to build and scale and grow and you know develop it. But that's the ultimate reality. So we eventually, around 2000, I think 2000 or 2001, started to build another bit of intellectual property around the idea of 3D voice for conference calls and virtual reality and games and things like that. And started filing patents for it and making a real go of it. And that ultimately was the thing that took the company all the way to either making a couple million dollars in revenue and getting acquired. And that was the right model, business model for that company and it worked. But the journey by which I got there was not a direct one and it involved just as much like personal growth and learning as it did developing the business. It took 14 years to do that whole thing from 1994 to 2008. It shouldn't take 14 years. That indicates I was a young kid and just had a lot to learn. But you learned, and I can't imagine how much you learned through that process. And you mentioned something earlier about going to that, that valley of hell, right? Like until you're about 30 employees. And one thing I've realized about business is it's very much working a muscle, right? all probably been in that point in our lives where we hadn't gone to the gym for a long time. We go in, we work out, we feel like we can barely lift any weights. And the next day we can't even move because we just have <laughs> the entire system. But you push through that, you work through it and you start getting comfortable. Now you're at a point where you're consistent, you're going to the gym, but if you're working out the right way, every session you're going to be pushing yourself and feeling exhausted. And you might feel like you're not progressing until you look back and you see, hey, six months ago, I was using 30-pound weights for that exercise. Now I'm using 50-pound weights. So even though the exhaustion level, if you're using that to gauge your progress, you're going to feel like you're not getting ahead because you're continually pushing yourself. And so as you're growing a business, what I've realized is you've got to figure out some metrics. And that's going to look different for different businesses and different people. Find some metrics to look at. So when you're head down, grinding, pushing through that valley of hell, try to climb up, get out on the other end, you can look back and say, okay, we are doing better. It may not feel like it, but we are making progress and this is why. And so that was just a thought I had. And and it's tough. Like it's I think some business owners, maybe I'm speaking for myself, there's always some of those occasional moments where we're like, why did I decide to do this? Why couldn't I just be happy working that W-2 cush job? But at the same time, I don't think we would have traded it for anything. No, if you have the entrepreneurial budget, you know, I was going to say there's two great points that I take away from what you just said, which is number one, take a step back every three months or six months they lean against the proverbial wall and survey, like, this is all that I've created. Get that perspective of like, wow, we are not the same company that we were six months ago. And if you're growing and doing it right, every six months, you will say, yeah, this is really a whole new ballgame. And KPI, you know, key performance indicator is definitely one of them. And anyway, I've lost my turn out. I apologize. We'll come back to you. Make sure you let us know, because I'm sure it was good. It happens to me all the time. So, And you know what? Actually, what we're going to do right now is uh, I think this would be a good time to pivot. You mentioned that it took 14 years. You exited that business. And that's really what jump-started you down this path of what you're in today. And so we're going to take a quick commercial break. And when we come back, I want to hear about that. And I want you to share with our listener what really jump-started that and how you're making an impact in the monetary world. 
So we'll be right back after this quick commercial break. Hey folks, I got my good friend, Julie Holly here to share with you something exciting she has coming up here in a few weeks that I myself will be participating in. And I was actually able to talk to my wife into joining me as well. So super excited for it coming up. But Julie, go ahead and tell us a little bit about your event you have coming up. Awesome. The Conscious Investor Growth Summit is coming up and it is really the charcuterie of all events. Instead of drilling down into one isolated topic or asset class like self-storage, multifamily, crypto, you know, whatever mindset, health, we're wrapping it all in one. And this is a powerful opportunity for you to like just nourish and replenish. And to Dallin's point, bring your spouse, bring your partner along. We're talking about everything from tax strategies, building credit, buying businesses, investing in assisted living facilities and other real estate to gut health and having our health as our wealth, being hyper-focused, making mental breakthroughs. It's really that place. It's the refueling station. And what is best, it's in the gorgeous Coeur d'Alene, Idaho at the resort right there on the lake. So you break free from the hustle of the metro areas so you can enjoy nature, walk on the beach because it's right there at the door or take a trail run. So you're really able to break free and renew yourself completely. Definitely looking forward to it. So folks, go to ConsciousInvestorGrowthSummit.com. Check it out. You'll see what we're talking about. And Julie has some incredible discounts going on for our community. So if you use my first name, Dallin, D-A-L-L-O-N, as a promo code, you'll see those incredible offers that she has for you. Awesome. Thanks, Julie. We look forward to seeing you in a few weeks. And we'll get back to our show. All right. Welcome back to The Millionaire Mind. So Keith, share with our listener... You had the successful exit. Sounds like you got out just in time before everything started uh, taking a dump. And you started, you shared with us a little bit earlier what uh, what kind of sparked this thought, this, this desire to get into what you're doing today. So share with our listener that journey, how you got into it, and help them understand really what you're doing. You know, first, it was a very personal motive, which is I worked 14 years, had this acquisition and anybody can google nortel acquires diamond where they announced it was a 10 million dollar deal um i did not have outside investors then out of partners so i took care of the employees you know well so i came to a lot of money and that was a life-changing transaction for me and but first stock market's crashing a little bit okay whatever right i mean stock market goes up stock market goes down and i thought okay well this is Maybe to get things on sale. Actually, the time of the acquisition, it felt so surreal, you know, because my job for 13 and a half years was to build a company. My job for basically half a year was to get sold. And then the day after that, I'm now a middle manager in a big corporation. It's a pretty abrupt transition. It all felt very surreal. It just felt just walking around just feeling bemused. So I, so I remember saying to myself and to my wife, I'm not going to make any major decisions financially. For 90 days, I just want to let this period, I knew it was going to be a period, I'd get over it. I did get a, a Porsche 911 Turbo, but other than that, and that happened to be almost a perfect 90-day bracket for the worst of the stock market, you know, collapsing. First, I, I felt very like, okay, you know, things are going on sale. This is great timing. I'm going to get much better buy-in opportunities on all the assets anybody would want to invest in if you have money. And then if things continued, it was obvious there was something more than just, okay, a stock market corruption. So I'm like, okay, well, what do I do with my own money? This was 14 years. And most of that time, you know, you're not necessarily drawing a salary, not on a regular basis. The last couple of years were pretty sweet. 
But before that, it was a lot of struggle, a lot of difficulty, personal, I hate the term sacrifice, because I was trading off, right? I gave, I willingly gave up something of lesser value to get something greater value, but I went through a lot, and to just lose all the money in, in this crisis is not what I wanted to do. And so I just started to read and study obsessively, and I got every book that was out there on this, and what, what they were saying on TV was useless, and what they were saying even in the Wall Street Journal, Investor's Business Daily, was almost as useless. Nobody really got to the root of anything. Eventually came across... Just fluff, people that could talk. You know, they started in the middle, and you know, money printing, and this, and nobody got to really to the root of it. And here, have some training as a scientist and as an engineer, which I had both, you know, the software engineering and the computer science piece, and some math background and some physics background. You're used to a certain rigor in science, and then when you're getting this fluffy bullshit in economics, it just doesn't even feel like is this a real field? I mean, it just felt like fluff. Yeah. So I came across and just obsessively, I felt like a moth drawn the flame. I mean, like seven days a week, 10 hours, it was just nuts. And it took a personal toll, as you can imagine. Eventually came across the writings of this old Hungarian professor who seemed at least be asking the right questions. I mean, I don't know if his answers were right at that point, but at least that. So I saw that he was teaching a course in Hungary and I was like, okay, well, I can afford the trip, obviously. I had tons of vacation coming to me because of the way my deal was done. There was actually a balance sheet adjustment. I had been accruing vacation for myself in QuickBooks, which I didn't take most of. So I had like huge amounts of vacation. It was actually cash off the top for that. It's like, okay, I'm not a big deal about vacation, but you actually want to take the cash off. Well, then I wanted to take the vacation. Plus, as a direct local person, I had five, anyways, I had like infinite vacation. Okay, I'm going to go to Hungary and see what this guy has to say. And without really intending, I sort of became a student. And then I started writing essays and I shared those essays with the guy I was studying from. And all of a sudden, it was like, I think you should apply for a PhD. It's not accredited school. You can never get a job. This is not a credential, but anyway, the work is real. And so I ended up getting a PhD in what he called monetary science or false monetary science. And it was really understanding the monetary system in a different way than the mainstream. And then I started to see how. Let me take a step back. Philosophically, what do entrepreneurs do? We solve problems. And I think that was your very first question. What was the problem you saw? The opportunity. Everybody in the world sees problems. Right? Entrepreneurs are not unique in seeing problems. But what do most people do? They complain about problems, usually over a beer with their buddies or their family. And they bitch and moan about it. They get it out of their system and they go back to work. A few people go lobby the government to go fix the problems. And the entrepreneur is the crazy one who says, I see a way to make money solving this problem. So a problem in the monetary system, the dollar ultimately doesn't work, reaching sort of the end of that. And gold does work. Okay, but how do you get from here to there? And the key is interest. If gold doesn't pay interest, then the only thing it's useful for is it's hoarding. You buy it and you stick it somewhere and you hide it, or you pay a vault to stick it somewhere and hide it. How many people do you think that own gold fall into this category where they'll buy it and then they just stick it in the safe? Or pay well, that's what you have. I mean, if you have gold, I mean, other than monetary metals, there is, which is my company now, there isn't anything else you can do with it. In the modern world, that's it. So and you weren't I, okay with that. I'm sorry? You weren't okay with that. Well, it's not doing anything economically. It's not helping the world move towards a gold standard. And ultimately, even the person who owns the gold, yeah, helping himself in a way, but not nearly as much as he should be able to. And if you could earn interest on it, it would be so much more useful, so much more interesting. And so it's interest is the force that draws gold into the market. Otherwise, it just disappears into private ports. For interest on it, we'll pull gold out. So that was the economic thesis that became the business thesis. We're going to pay interest. We're going to pull gold into the market. 
And we're going to use that gold to finance mostly certain qualified industries, like the refiners or jewelry manufacturers, for example, of these industries. And then we'll make a spread in the middle. So the company's paying us X, we take a spread and we pay the remainder of the interest to the owners of the gold. And one of my philosophical points about business, I guess, is that business, business is never easy. I mean, if you do something that's easy to do, like anybody can make a good hamburger, that's not a hard thing to do. Therefore, it's hard to make money making hamburgers because everybody can make hamburgers. If you do something that's really, really hard to do, then it's easy to make money at it, assuming you can do it at all. And so this is one of those businesses really hard to do. But if you can do it, then you can make money at it. So business is not easy, but it's simple. Everybody should be able to say, if you're in business, you should be able to say, forget the 30-second elevator pitch. You should be able to say in five seconds flat, this is what we do. We pay interest on gold. You know, period. If you don't get that to that level of clarity, how can you expect everybody from your employees to your customers, to your vendors, to the media, whoever you need to understand, your investors? If you can't explain it that way, how do you expect them to get it? So anyway, it's a very simple business. And I heard the term for purpose. So it's not a non-profit business. I'm definitely motivated by making money as much as any other entrepreneur ever is. I got to enjoy some good things. And it was kind of an appetizer that warmed my appetite for, for more. But the thing that, you know, you don't get up every morning fired up thinking about money. I've never found that very motivating. I don't think that is for anybody else either. I want to say so for true business owners. It's not that might be maybe why some people get started, but then they realize very quickly if they stay, it's not what keeps them going. And it's the ones that are truly set on just the money that I think flounder and have a very difficult time making it. Yeah, as soon as you run into difficulties and hard spots, then yeah, you find you say, oh, it's not worth it. If all you just wanted was to make money, there's easier things you could be doing to make some money. Yeah, you know what. What I think about a lot is the world is headed to a very dark place. And I don't want to get pessimistic and, and do the whole doom, doom porn, I think it's called, thing. But all I'll say is, and I like living in modern civilization, we live in the, in the best time and the best place ever, historically. Look at how good our life is compared to even 100 years ago. They were talking about a chicken in every pot as an aspiration, because there are people who didn't even have chicken meat most nights for dinner. You know, they had a little bit of uh, gruel diluted by water, and that was a meal for the day. We just live in incredible times, but this, we're headed to a dark place. And so if I can find a pathway to help people rediscover and return to an honest money that actually works, then I'm helping the world be a better place than where it was and helping myself because I want to live in this world as well. So it's a very personal and selfish motive as well as a, I don't want to help the world by sacrificing. I don't want to be a martyr. I want to make a lot of money doing this. And I've helped everybody. And that's why I made the money. That's awesome. And you said like in simple terms, your business is you pay interest on gold. So walk our listener a little bit through your process and how you do that. So, I mean, opening accounts pretty easy. I mean, if you have gold, you can, you know, we can give you a shipping label to FedEx to one of our vault partners. And then, you know, you have it on account. It's really no different than any other gold storage program that's out there. And there's certainly many of those. We don't charge storage fees because the whole point is that's just a temporary holding spot until we present the next lease. And so we're doing gold leasing and we lease gold to companies that need gold either as inventory or work in progress. So they're manufacturing, or they're distributing, or they're doing something where they need to have a lot of gold. And their problem is that gold inventory has to be financed. You know, throwing around millions of dollars with gold and you're making a 1% margin on it. 
And how are you going to, you know, you're not going to just finance that gold out of pocket change. That has to be financed. So typically they do that with a dollar loan from a bank. And then the problem is, let's say you borrow a million dollars, you buy your million dollars worth of inventory. What do you do if the price of gold drops 10%? Now you have a $900,000 asset, but you still have a million dollar liability. You're insolvent. So then what you are supposed to do, and a lot of smaller ones don't do this, is hedge. So you borrow a million and a quarter, buy the million dollars worth of gold, put a quarter million dollars in a brokerage account, and trade gold futures with leverage. And that's your hedge. And then that has complexity and moving parts and cost and compliance and obviously risk. So if you lease the gold from us, it's providing the finance, but also it's shifting. Since the gold isn't your asset, you don't own it. It's not available to your creditors. It's also not on your balance sheet. It's not your liability. What you owe the return of at the end of the lease is the gold, not some dollar value that you borrowed. And so you don't care about the gold price anymore. You're agnostic. You're in business to make your spread. Right, so you take raw gold bars and you manufacture that into jewelry. People pay you premium for the jewelry above the value of the gold. That's your business, and you're not forced to be a speculator on the gold price. So we're solving a problem for the lessee. We're solving a problem for the gold owner. And to put some numbers in perspective on this, the lease rate net to the owners of the gold is between two and five percent, depending on the lease deal, the lease opportunity. We would typically make around two percent. So if the lessee is paying. 6%, we take our 2% spread, and then the owners of gold is getting 4%, which is gold on gold return. So if you put up 100 ounces of gold, at the end of the year, you get back 104 ounces of gold. So if the price of gold goes up and you regard that as a gain, I argue in my economics work, that's not a gain, that's just a drop in the dollar, but the price is all yours and the ounces are all yours. So, so if you get those four, four additional ounces at the end of the year and gold goes through the roof, or increases over that year, those four ounces is going to follow that that's right. trend. Yeah. So they're getting paid back in gold. And I, and I thought that's what was so cool when we had our conversation. You're not just leasing out the gold and giving them a dollar return. You're returning gold for gold. Yeah, I'm returning their gold as gold, and then I'm paying them the interest in gold as well. You're compounding gold like that's people don't do that are you the only one out there that offers a solution keith the best of my knowledge we are the only ones what a cool idea because other than that it's just sitting in somebody's gun safe in their home office not really doing anything other than just following the markets right it's even worse than that for most people so i mean you know if you have a handful of gold coins you have to come in the gun safe 10 ounces maybe 20 ounces you know if you have a significant amount of wealth in gold you really shouldn't be storing that at home i mean Especially if people know that you have it. I mean, you could wake up to a guy in a ski mask sticking a gun in your face saying, I know you have gold in your safe. I open your safe, I'm going to blow your brains out. And what are you going to do? Yeah. So you shouldn't have that much of anything that's stealable at home like that. That should be in a professional storage facility. And then you're paying for storage, which is typically about 0.75% per year. And so if the gold price is going up 20% a year, most people don't really care that much about that. But if the gold price is going sideways, then the storage fees start to eat you uh, after a while. They start to eat you alive. And you do free storage. Yeah, there's no storage. No storage costs. There's no storage fees. Right. And you're getting a return in actual gold. That's it. What could go wrong? How could somebody lose in a situation like this? Well, I mean, the first thing is, and obviously everyone who opens an account asks this question, okay, what are the risks? Because anybody promising you a return without a risk is either a liar or a fool. You should run. Even with dare utter that. He's probably breaking the law to even say that. And he's certainly 
being unethical. There are risks. So if we lease the gold company and that company turns out to be a scam or the company is a legitimate company, but then they get into trouble and for whatever reason, the owner tucks the gold under his arm. Gold is very compact. I mean, it has a lot of value for its weight, $2,000 for one ounce. I mean, compare that to copper, which is like under $4 for a pound or 25 cents an ounce, right? But also gold is, if you've never held solid gold before, everybody should go out and find that opportunity. Gold is so much heavier than it has any right to be for its size. I mean, it's astonishingly heavy, which is probably why even the ancient people felt that has like a tangible reality to it. Like an old small factor iPhone would be about a kilo if that were gold, just like two and a quarter pounds. Way heavier than, than you think it should be. It's very, very compact. I mean, you could steal millions of dollars and easily fit, if not in your pocket, certainly a backpack, and walk out on a plane with it. So if the lessee disappears with it, that's a problem. There's a lot that we do. We can make the lessee have insurance. We make the lessee have daily reporting and a couple times a year audits. And we have insurance at our level that will cover certain losses that their insurance is covered. But there's always the possibility there's a gap where the insurance carriers don't pay and someone just flies through not extradition country and then you know that's it and and you know gold is gone um the lease the gold lease and we also do other kinds of things for credit investors only but but you know the gold lease is the lowest risk thing that we can think of that generates a return on it because it's physical metal that's there but the lessee declares bankruptcy the gold is not exposed to their bankruptcy estate because it's leased tangible property. Look, if let's say you go lease a car uh, from Ford and then you declare bankruptcy. You know, the car's not liquidated for the benefit of the creditors. You know, Ford just repossesses the car. It's their car. So just by being a lease, it um, you know takes out some of the risks. And then by being insured, that takes out a whole bunch of risk. And then by us obviously doing due diligence and carefully monitoring it and having their ERP system report every day on the inventory and serial numbers and product SKUs and all these things, um, you know, it's it's the lowest risk thing that still generates a return, but it's not zero. It'll never be zero. If it was zero, then I guess it'd still be, in theory, there'd be a return. I guess you'd call that the true risk-free rate of return, but that's that's really a mythology. That's not a real thing. Yeah. So what's the average amount of gold clients typically use to work with you or the range? Like, is there like, hey, this is our range. Like, this is the minimum that... The minimum is 10 ounces, which at today's price is $20,000. I think your average client, when they open an account, is a little over double that in the 20s somewhere. And then account sizes tend to grow over time. People want to see that we're you know, proving that we do what we say we're going to do. And then accounts grow over time. We have some really big accounts, accounts with commas in them, as we say, and everything in between. But what we're doing is, I guess that's the thing, getting back to starting a business. If you're doing something that isn't unique, it's just damned hard because, especially as a startup, there's so many things you're missing that your established competitors will already have. If you don't have something that's super, super, super cool, then why is anybody going to stick with you? We're not a startup anymore. We're 30-something employees now. But for the first couple of years, you're missing... We didn't have a client portal for people to log in and see their accounts and you know, all these kinds of things. Any normal, whether it's a gold storage program or obviously a financial account, that's like table stakes. You have anything like that, but why do people put up with it? Well, we're the only ones paying interest on gold. Build all those things, build most of those things now. There's always more stuff to build. And then bit by bit, the process of 
There's a book called Crossing the Chasm. It's one of those books everybody should probably read. It talks about how you go from the really early enthusiasts, this side of the chasm, and you have to get across to the other side, which is like the early adopters of the mainstream. The mainstream is so much more demanding and so much less forgiving. These guys are like, hey, this is cool. These guys are like, yeah, but it does it do this and this and this and this. And so by the time to get there, you have to build all these things. You're still addressing this market, but you have to build on all the things in anticipation of this market is why they call it chasm. That's awesome. There's another book out there called The Blue Ocean Strategy. And what you're sharing with our listener is a blue ocean. So in that book, they talk about the red ocean, just bloodied, water bloodied with competition is really what it is. And this blue ocean is that new idea. It's that new strategy that you really become the early adopter or founder or creator of that. And one of the examples they shared was Circus Olay, right? So you had the circus with the three ring circus, you had the animals, and then you had theater. And what Circus Soleil did was they brought those two together to create what they are today. And like they are acrobatic theater. Circus, like that's it. Like nobody else is going to be able to compete with them because they created a blue ocean. And from what you're sharing with us, Keith, that's really what it sounds like you're doing in this opportunity for people to continue to grow and preserve their wealth and put to work some of this gold that they've probably worked very hard to acquire and to start investing it. So super, super cool idea. Yeah, I think investors will tell you this, even if entrepreneurs are being inclined to do otherwise. The risk the investor is taking is kind of, especially at the startup moment, kind of comparable whether you're doing a Me Too business, whether you're doing something with truly blue ocean, whether you're looking for a really small idea and a small opportunity, whether you're looking for a big one, the risks are kind of comparable. So you might as well be looking for a big opportunity when you have your own there's not swimming, you have your entire own ocean. And I can tell you what the downside is, because that's abundantly clear to me as well, which is you have to be prepared for the entire world to think you're not only wrong, but you're an idiot. And you have to be okay with that. You have to be comfortable with that. To be able to go to bed and live with yourself, that everyone thinks you're a moron. So your self-esteem has to be self-esteem <laughs> and not in any way derived as the esteem from others. Because in the beginning days, nobody will give you the accolades or even you know, the crap. They're just going to say, oh, that's not going to work. You're pretty pessimistic about it. And you get past that. And of course, if your idea is a good one, then you get to the point where everyone's like, oh, that's so cool. How do you think of that? Well, a lot of years of hard work. 100%. Well, Keith, this has been incredible. And I knew our interview was going to go by quick and just really appreciate you coming on and sharing with our listener about your journey and just how you're making an impact in the world today. So super, super cool. As we wrap this up, there's four questions I like to ask every guest at the end of every show. And the first one being is, what is one absolute book recommendation for those looking to scale and further develop their millionaire mind? I think I'd have to recommend navigating the growth curve because it talks about stages of development of, of a company and the stages are defined by headcount because headcount is the root of complexity. I actually think complexity is like headcount factorial. So if you have N people in the company, N factorial is the, is the complexity. And so you know, stage one is one to nine employees. Stage two is 10 to 19. Stage three is 20 to 34. Stage four is, is 35 to, I don't know where that ends. And at each stage, there's a set of things you have to do. You have to be thinking about all these kinds of issues. So as you get into stage two, you start to be dividing the company into teams and you have a team leader. In stage three, you have each team has a manager and now you have a management team and so on. And so it's telling you issues go from not hot to hot. 
or what you have to be thinking about and focused on. The only downside with that book was a lot of these business books, they think they're novelists. And so it's presented, it's like the EMF, it's presented as like a novel. And the actual story is pretty banal. But the business wisdom that they're trying to impart, the core of the idea really, I think it's a good one. Awesome. Good recommendation. Keith, what has been one of your favorite quotes that you've embodied and lived by? <laughs> I think and this is so much beyond just business. It's the oath that uh, John Galt took in uh, Galt's Gulch and Atlas Shrugged. I swear by my life never to live for the sake of another, nor ever to live, ask anyone else to live for the sake of mine. Not in this world to sacrifice to others, and don't for a minute think anyone is going to sacrifice for you, and especially the people who loudly profess that they will. They're trying to get one over on you. Expect to do a fair deal with your employees, with your vendors. Yeah, okay, you're going to negotiate with price. But if, if you think that the whole point of that vendor negotiation is to beat them up so they don't make any money, you're approaching things as a win-lose kind of thing in the Covey sense. You should be looking for those win-win value creation kinds of things. They can make money. You can make money. It's good for everybody. And then life's a lot more fun. Your relationships are a lot more satisfying. They last a lot longer because the other party is getting something as well. In the way, everybody, everyone is equal. Everyone is a peer. We're all trying to pursue what we want in life. You know, people who work, you know, for wages. This is another thing I, I just want to get out of my soapbox if I may for a minute. I used to think, you know, when I started my first company that anybody who had any ability should be an entrepreneur and do this, you know, do a company for themselves. I absolutely believe that. And over the course of building that company, I discovered that Nobody wanted what I wanted. And then the way I would frame it now is that the life of an entrepreneur is, no matter what, like, what, no matter what path you want to take, there's a set of trade-offs. And entrepreneurs are the ones who pick a certain set of trade-offs consistently, but other people pick a different set of trade-offs. And there's nothing wrong with that. You can't tell them they're wrong. I mean, they're doing what they're doing for reasons that are just as impersonal and important to them as the reasons you're doing what you're doing. And so you have a partnership. It's a win-win kind of deal. And the employees want to make money. They want to be in an environment that's rational. They're recognized for what they can do. And they want to work with good people. They want to learn. They want to make a fair amount of money. But they want to go home to their family at the end of the day. And sometimes as the entrepreneur, that last part of going home to your family isn't available. Right? For the last six months of 2023, I think I was on the road five out of well, five out of seven months, let's say. You do what you got to do. Yeah, and that's the trade-off you make as an entrepreneur. In order for you to get what you want for the business, the business has to get what it needs from you first. And I probably over-answered your question, but... No, 100%. And I'm at a point in my life, in personal relationships, business relationships, if it is not mutually beneficial, we're not doing it. Yeah, just walk away. Like, life is can be win-win. It can be a win-win-win. We got an opportunity that we're starting to pursue, and it doesn't just benefit the people that we're presenting it to. It benefits the people that they're serving. So with this partnership, it's now creating a win-win-win. And if somebody's not willing to work with you in that fashion, go find somebody else. Like yeah. Life is too short to not enter into mutually beneficial relationships. And good business owners and people you want to work with will understand that. They will understand that. So awesome. Well, Keith, how can our listeners learn more about you and your business? Where can they go to find out more info? So the website is monetary-metals, that's the plural with an S on the end, dot com. My Twitter handle is at RealKeithWiener. Those are probably two, two best ways to do it. If you Google my name, you'll find my articles. I wrote for Forbes 
my stuff's syndicated all over the place, but most of it's on, uh, and the Keith Wiener economics.com for those that really want to dive deeper into economics apart from the business or anything else. Awesome. Look, this has been an incredible conversation with Keith. And if this is your first time listening, I'm so glad that you tuned in. People have been asking me what my company does. So since I have you here listening to my show, I'll share that with you now. So my company partners with busy professionals just like Keith that are looking to experience significant tax savings, have more to invest, and even reinvest their hard-earned capital. And we work with other successful business owners like you by offering them opportunities to invest alongside us in large apartment deals. At Rev Equity Group, we have found that most successful business owners have a strong desire to give and to serve. And we simply provide a vehicle to enable them to grow and preserve their wealth so they can give of their time and financial success more abundantly and freely. If you've been frustrated with the stock market, want to grow capital in something you can actually touch and see and invest in one of the most recession-resilient asset classes, then you can find out how I could serve you by visiting investwithrev.com forward slash resources. It can be overwhelming vetting the right investment and the right operator, but at Rev, we make apartment investing easy. And if you're listening to this and you have at minimum 10 ounces of gold, you should be reaching out to Keith. Reach out to him, reach out to his team, and just have a conversation. See what you guys can do together. Keith, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thanks again for coming on and just sharing with us your journey and how you're here to serve a very specific group of people. Super cool to listen to. And to our listener, remember, you can't have a million-dollar dream with a minimum wage work ethic. Go out there and earn your win for today, and we'll catch you on the next episode. Hope you got value from this episode of The Millionaire Mind, a journey into the mindset of successful business owners. If you want to get results, you've got to take the right steps to get there. Dallin hosts a free weekly educational webinar focused on teaching you how to start investing in apartments so you too can experience the benefits of real estate ownership without doing any of the heavy lifting. There you can gain insights, connect with others like you, and ask Dallin all your burning questions about how you can start owning apartments today. Go to themillionairemind.us. That link is in the show notes.